0: On the way to church tonight, as we were riding in the car, I mentioned just kind of offhandedly to Kelly that tonight I was going to be sharing and we were going to be looking at one of my favorite theological concepts from Scripture, one of the things that I enjoy the most about the Bible, and as I was continuing to be preachery about it, she said, you're going to be talking about friendship, aren't you? And I said, uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking that she might assume that I was going to be speaking on some deep theological concept that was very elaborate or in the sovereignty of God and the mysteries of God's will and whatnot. But, you know, I wasn't. <laughs> truth of the matter is, tonight, that's what we are going to be looking at. But something more than just friendship, something deeper and more meaningful than that, over the weekend, I don't know how many of you are Saturday Night Live fans, but last Saturday night, there was comedian John Mulaney on there. And he's an actor, and he does uh, stand-up, and he did the opening monologue for last, last Saturday's episode. He was talking, beginning to go into a section on friendships, and talking about uh, how friendships are not what they should be. In our culture and the thing that he shared that made actually made a lot of news on it, a lot of different sites and sources that I saw was he mentioned Jesus in kind of a funny way but the more I stopped and thought about it the more I realized he was right on with this so John Mulaney, in his open monologue speaking about friendship said this he said it's hard to make friends as an adult male maybe some of you adult males out there are going mm, yeah, it kinda is." it's hard to make friends as an adult male He said, I think that the greatest miracle of Jesus is that he was a 33-year-old man, and he had 12 best friends. Now, what's funny about that is last week we saw that one of them was actually probably more of a frenemy, right? If we're being honest. So he's a 33-year-old man, man, and he had 12 best friends. And then he went on to elaborate even further, and he said, and they were not his wife's friend's husbands. (laughs) And... He didn't meet them a long time ago in school. He met them in his 30s. Twelve best friends. And I really spent some time thinking about that and thinking about the scriptures and thinking about friendship as I prepared the message for this week. Because we are continuing in our series on the last week of Jesus' life. And we're in the fourth day. The fourth day, traditionally, is called the quiet day. Or the silent day. It's called such because there is actually no gospel accounts recorded about what happened on this day in Jesus' life. So we saw him come into Jerusalem, we saw him go into the temple and move some things, we saw him preach the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at what was going on kind of behind the scenes with Judas, and then on this day, the silent day. Wednesday, the day before all literal hell would break loose in Jesus' life, we don't find a peep in Scripture. Not one account. Not one story. Not one aside. Nothing. Now we do know, based on the context and Jesus' habits and patterns and the things that He's already done so far this week, that. Many scholars, and I too, believe that most likely on this Wednesday, the day before hell would break loose, that Jesus chose to spend this day with his closest friends. Because as we've talked about every message from the beginning, he spent a lot of time and he spent each night during that week at the Mary and Martha Bed and Breakfast, right? At the Air M&M B&B. And I believe, as many do, that he spent the entire day this day just with them, with them and and the disciples as the disciples were coming and going, because Jesus would have been preparing for the Passover, which is to happen the next day. So he spent it with the closest people in his life, with his closest friends. You might have thought it was weird when Sean came up and I had Sean read one verse tonight, and that verse simply was, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You might go, okay, great, so I'm... Jesus loved a lot of people. Jesus is love, right? Well, the funny thing about that is there are very few references in the Gospels to Jesus loving specific people by name. We know that there was the disciple that Jesus loved. And we know very specifically there were these people that are mentioned by name. People that we've seen in other messages, Right? And the thing is, when you look at the entirety of the Gospels and you look at everywhere that Jesus went for three and a half years of his ministry that's recorded in the Gospels, he met with and interacted with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Just lots and lots. You know, we like to make excuses about how we don't have time and we're too busy for our friends. Well, none of us is the Messiah who's here to redeem God's people and bring the Gentiles into the kingdom, right? I mean, last I checked, I wasn't. I don't think any of you are that busy. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of everything that Jesus did, and everywhere that he went, and everyone that he interacted with, and everyone that he had a relationship with, he still had time, and made, because he made it, not just because he had it laying around. He was the busiest person who's ever lived. He made time for his friends. He made time for them. We're in the last week of his life, and as we explore it, we're learning about the way that he handled certain things. On the silent day, we learn some very specific things, really, which is kind of an argument of absence, but it still holds true. We find that after finishing a couple of the most exhausting days of his life in Jerusalem, that he spends that next day, the silent day, the day before everything goes awry, Relaxing with friends and preparing for the Passover. And what we learn from Jesus' example in the last week of his life on this fourth day is we learn from Jesus about how we should treat our friends. Now, what text are we going to look at tonight? Because there isn't one, right? I already shared. There isn't a text of what actually specifically happened on this day. The text that we're going to look at tonight, which that verse Sean read for us from, is from John chapter 11. And we're actually going to look at an account of probably, in many ways, the very worst day in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And how Jesus handled that. The people that he loved. That he made time for. Because again, and I can't stress this enough, you will never have enough time for the people in your life unless you make it. You just won't. And Jesus, when you, I want you really to try to get your head around this because Jerusalem, which is where everything goes down in that last week, Bethany, which is where they live, is just outside of Jerusalem. Like it literally is right there. It didn't take long for them to walk back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany where Jesus was going to stay the night. Jesus' base of operations, however, was all the way down in Galilee. So for Jesus to make time for the people that he loved, which we see in several accounts in the Gospels, three, which is actually a lot when you think about the entirety of the Gospels, that he would, Jesus would make time specifically by name for these people, which he undoubtedly spent so much more time with <laughs> because we have only have the three recorded, but it's three more than most people. He would have had to go way out of his way to go and see them, to spend time with them, to cultivate that friendship, to make things work, to work through things. It wasn't like you could just shoot him a text. You're talking days through dangerous territory to go and make those people special in his life and he in theirs. So let's look at this account of probably the worst day in their lives and how Jesus is a friend to them. And we're going to see some things that we can learn from that and how we should treat our friends. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep Said to his fellow disciples, "Let us go, that we may die with." Or, "Let us also go, that we may die with him." So, what do we have here? We have a really crazy account of the people who were most likely, or they were not most likely, who were the closest people in Jesus's life to him. One of them falls ill and is sick to the point of dying. Jesus gets word of this; like they send word from the house in Bethany all the way to where they were. He gets word that Lazarus is sick from Lazarus' sisters. And you think, well, I mean, you've got to rush there, right? If one of your closest friends, you think, if they're sick and they're potentially about to die, you're, you'd, you'd think you would go right to them, right? You'd want to be there to try to help, to do whatever you could to help, especially if they might not make it, you want to see them. Yeah, but Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He stays two more days, which had to just be uh, befuddling and confusing to everyone involved. And he's like, no, we're not going anywhere yet. And the disciples had to be going, what in the world? Are you literally just waiting around for this guy to die? Why are, are you afraid that if you go back there, you're going to get, they're going to try to kill you again? Is that what this is, Jesus? Why are we waiting two more days? But he waits the two more days. He receives the word and he waits the two more days. And then after those two days have passed, he says, okay, it's time to go. And they're still confused, undoubtedly, because they don't know fully the depth of the situation here. Jesus supernaturally knows that Lazarus has passed. They do not, because the last they heard, he was still alive. Jesus fills them in on this. And, you know, this is one of those passage passages where it's hard not to look at and go, why in the world is Jesus being such a big jerk? But I think it's, it's very important that we get a hold of that. And that as human beings, we reconcile why that's not the case. So he then says, Okay, now we're going to go, guys. Let's go down and see Lazarus. He's dead. And now they're probably all going, we oh, are we bothering? No. Okay. You know, we'll go and do the Jew- Jewish funerary rites. The, the, the important things, then there are several important things I think we need to see in this worst day of his friends' lives and how he responds to it that I believe we also encounter in our own lives when we strive to try to have friendships with people. Deep, meaningful friendships. Now, I could preach another message on this entirely about how our culture is pretty doggone terrible at friendships. Our culture is such that as you get older and you progress through the normal stages of life, you go on, you do the school thing, you find your spouse, you have kids, you kick your friends to the curb. You maybe send them a Christmas card once a year. Check back with them. If they happen to have kids that are about the same age, you might do some play dates. Maybe the kids grow up together, but then when they go off and they separate, you don't really talk to the, the parents anymore. And it's all very situational and conditional and circumstantial. And we just we don't see that. We don't see that in Jewish culture, and we don't see that with Jesus. But again, another sermon for another time. But I say all that to say, let's just assume tonight, let's just assume tonight that we have deep, meaningful friendship relationships in our lives that are redeeming and sharpen us like we're told in Proverbs is so important. Let's just assume that we do. And let's look at what we can learn from those things and from Jesus in this situation. And the first thing I believe that we learn from this text on how Jesus treated his friends was that we learn that it's important to put God's will first when it comes to our friends. Super important. Super important. Do I think Jesus was sad that he and only he really knew the full scope of Lazarus' sickness and knew that he was going to die? Imagine Jesus was a 100% man just as he was a 100% God. And imagine one of your best friends, you know for a fact, is dying and will die. And that you could see them if you hurried potentially to get down there. But Jesus knew that's not what God wanted him to do. And he knew there was a very specific reason why he didn't want them to do that. And even in knowing that, he still had to wrestle with and reconcile those feelings of knowing that his friend was suffering and would experience death. And he wasn't there why and jesus is clear about that in the text he says in the first section in verse 4 when jesus heard he said this illness does not lead to death again probably confusing for everyone right but again jesus is thinking i going to be bringing this guy back there's going to be a resurrection that doesn't take away the pain right a lot of times in life we experience loss even when we know things will be better on the other side if we have parents or loved ones or whatever who know the lord when they die, it still hurts, right? Even though you know you're going to see him again someday. So it doesn't take that away. But Jesus knew there was something bigger here, something more important, that God was doing something here. And he had to stand by and let God do it and not interfere. And not do what many of us as human beings would do and go and try to call the cavalry and ride in and try to save the day at the 11th hour. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified for it. And we learn it's important to put God's will first in the lives of our friends because God is oftentimes doing something in our friends' lives. And we have to let Him. And maybe He's doing something good in their lives. But maybe it doesn't mesh up with our plans and it's a struggle and we just don't know what's going on or what to do with that. And we want to somehow interfere. And we have to go, no, whatever this is happening, whatever going on is meant to glorify God. But maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe our friends are making decisions that are not good. Decisions that could ruin their life. And maybe we've already done what God calls us to do. And as friends, we've lovingly confronted them. And we've done everything within our, our power without overstepping lines to try to reach them. And God says, They're in my hands now. But we go, you know what, I just I'm gonna do something. I'm going to yell at them. I'm going to do whatever. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm willing to sin even in order to try to do the right thing. And God says, no, I'm doing something there. Just as as I allow this thing, whatever it is, to happen in your friend's life, you too need to let it happen. Because on the other side, there's another plan. God is doing something that we can't see. Jesus had to essentially live with the fact that he had to let his friend die. Because God's will meant something greater. And there are times that we will experience things in the lives of our friends where we'll want to interfere, we'll want to intervene, we'll want to try to save them, we'll want to do lots of things we have no business doing because God is actually doing something even greater in their lives that maybe we can't fully see. But there's another thing that sometimes we do with our friends as adults, isn't there? Because on the one end, we might try to rush in and save them and interfere with God's will for their lives and interfere with what he's doing there. What's the other thing that we like to do as adults when our friends are doing things that we don't agree with and are hurting us and all of those kinds of things? We drop them. We go, well, I don't have time to deal with all that drama. I've got better things to do than be there for them. If they're going to be like that, I don't really need them as a friend anyway. I'll just not have any. And that's not what God calls us to do either. Because God does not do that to us when we are that friend. One of the hardest things that we can do is give our friends to the Lord, place them in his hands, trust that he knows better than we do. That he knows them better than we do. That he loves them more than we do. And that he's got their best intentions at heart. So Jesus, we also see this idea again. Jesus reiterates it later in the passage. When he tells them, he he kind of explains to them why he let Lazarus die and why he's now going after the fact. He says to them in 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then down in verse 14, Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, for the sake of them, because God has a plan. I was glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. From this particular account and from many other places in the Gospels, we learn from Jesus that God's will is more important than anything else and that he always has a plan that we can't see often behind the scenes that's bigger than anything that we could come up with. And that even applies to our friends, the people that we love and care the most about. We learn it's important to put God's will first with our friends. How are you doing with that? First of all, do you have any real deep friends that aren't circumstantially driven that are more than just incidental life phase people if you do that's awesome thank god for that but i want to encourage you in that take time to give them to the lord and look at what he's doing in their lives and make certain that you want his will in their lives more than you want your will in their lives. The first thing that we learn is that it's most important to God put God's will first in the lives of our friends. The second, and this is really my, one of my favorite themes in scripture, and I could, again, talk about this probably for many, many, many sessions. The second is this. We learn it's important to cultivate committed love with our friends. So why did Sean read verse five? And that's it. It's because it's so very important to realize how significant it is that Jesus loves these folks. Not just in a oh, Jesus came to die for everyone, and we hear so many times in church and talk about it all the time. We just, it's kind of almost become a thing where we're like, oh yeah, I know that. Okay, great. Thanks, Jesus. But no, Jesus loved them even more than that. He specifically loved them and had a relationship with them now he does have that with us it's true we do experience that but he had a relationship with them in the flesh too something we won't experience this side of eternity he loved them he loved them with a special kind of love that it's so amazing and i I, i'm a bit of a romantic i'll be honest but not romantic in the sense of like love feelings all that but like actual deep meaningful love in the hebrew my favorite concept of scripture is called the Hesed. There is no actual English word that encapsulates the full meaning of what that word in the Hebrew means. The Hesed is a deep, loyal commitment, a steadfast love that is irrespective of time and circumstances and trials and struggles. It is a commitment that can, in fact, be at times one sided but still just as legitimate, it is a covenant love. It is a love that we find in Scripture that is described of God for his people. In the Old Testament, Jesus loved his people, whether they were following him and serving him and loving him and obeying him. He loved them just as much when they were in captivity in Babylon and Assyria and those times when they chased other gods And rejected him. He loved them and was committed to them. And was there for them. It's a love that God has unconditionally. For those that he considers his friends. His people. There are other examples that we see in the Bible of this said love. This covenant committed, faithful, loyal, undying love. You maybe have heard of some of them. The only real place that we see it pictured in the New Testament is when Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, that was very one-sided, right? Because the, the guy who was basically left for dead, he was kind of unconscious. It's kind of hard to commit to somebody when you're not really with it. Yet, however, the Samaritan, though, The one who spent his money, who used his donkey, who took and went the miles to take this individual to ensure that he lived and got the care that he needed at personal sacrifice and great cost himself demonstrates intentionally through Jesus' story the power and the importance of said love. He was committed to making certain that this man lived. And then Jesus uses that as a moment to challenge the people around him to say, that is how we love our neighbor. It is a love that is covenant and community-based in that we have an obligation to the people in our community, the friends that we have in our lives, to sacrificially love them when it stinks, when it hurts, when it costs us something. We owe them. You would go. I don't owe anybody anything. They didn't do anything. No, you owe them. If you are in a commitment to them, a covenant, a said love relationship, as we see pictured in the scriptures, you owe them. I'm tired of churches that have these casual relationships that don't go beyond the walls that they're found, that don't bother with the people there unless it's convenient when we owe one another to be there for each other. We see in John thirteen thirty-five. Jesus tells them, they will know that you love me by your love for your friends. He wasn't like, oh, well, if you're nice to people at church and they're going to know you're a Christian because you're a nice guy or girl. No, 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 no. They will know That you love me by how you love your friends. And Jesus did that. And they for him. They risked their lives every day to be in contact with him. It was a hostile culture that hated Jesus and what he was about and what it seemed like he was trying to do. We saw a couple weeks ago they were planning to halt Lazarus out and kill him, and they put Jesus up every day that week up until the end. A great personal sacrifice and cost to them because they were committed to each other. Jonathan and David, if you've never read that in Scripture, I cannot I cannot stress enough that you need to read that account. The story of Jonathan and David and their friendship for one another. And the great personal cost to both of them. And then Ruth and Naomi. We miss, we often when we read about Ruth, you know, we make it about Ruth and Boaz and all that. But, man, Naomi demonstrates a covenant, said, loving relationship for Ruth that I would argue is just as important as anything with Boaz. Because she could have gone off and just left her, not not daughter-in-law really. I mean, they weren't actually really connected by blood. But she said, even though I'm not connected to you and we're not family, you're my family, and I love you, and I will be with you, no matter what happens. We learned from Jesus that it's so important to cultivate a hasad love with the people in our lives, to be committed to them, to 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 owe them in any way that we can, no matter how they treat us. Someone will say, well, well, you know, Boundaries is a good book. You should read that. And that's true. There, there should be boundaries in life, yes. But when it comes to love and demonstrating that love commitment to the people in our lives, you can demonstrate love to someone without letting them walk all over you and abuse you. But we don't do that very well, do we? We rush in and save the day. We rush out and look the other way. Jesus shows it's important to cultivate I said, love with our friends. How much do you love your friends? Would you give your life for them? Again, not in some romantic, epic way. Would you give your life? Not your breath, not your oxygen, not your skin and flesh and bones. Would you give your life every day to be there for someone? Even if they don't treat you the greatest. Even if they don't really reciprocate. Even if they don't exactly love you like you love them, would you do it? Do you have anyone like that in your life? Jesus shows us first that it's so vitally important to put God's will first in our friends' lives. He shows us the importance of cultivating a committed, said relationship, a love relationship with our friends. And then We do see. It's important to risk ourselves with our friends. So why do we go from rushing in to save the day to rushing out to looking the other way? It's because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to risk. We don't want our relationships to cost us anything. And when it looks like they might, we run. Jesus didn't run. If you're alive long enough and you know people long enough, you realize that real friendship is almost never convenient. I can't think of one close friend. Incidentally, I still have a few close friends in my life that I've had most of my entire life. I've been very fortunate and blessed for that reason. But I can, I can tell you with great uncertainty, it's never been convenient. Those guys are knuckleheads. <laughs> they, they are. They continuously do things where I'm just like, dude. Why? And, oh, no. Okay. I I love you anyway. But, man, if you can, let's try to think next time. Real friendship is almost never convenient, but that's what we want, isn't it? Especially in this culture. We want everything to be easy. We don't want risk. We want risk management. Companies spend billions of dollars for risk management, right? Right? Because we've tried to protect ourselves against everything. When I read this passage and I look at the conversation that takes place back and forth between the disciples, and I look at what transpires and you look at how Jesus processes and handles that, when he does make the decision to go, how do the disciples respond? What do they say? They say this. He says, "Let's go to, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples respond to him in this way. They say, Rabbi, teacher. Notice that they use the word rabbi and not lord, right? Because a lot of them were quick to use the word lord because they did love him. They did recognize him as their lord, their master. But they use the word rabbi, which simply means teacher, which is kind of a, it's like a distancing term. In fact, anytime you see Judas interacting with Jesus in the gospels, it's always rabbi. File that one away because it keeps him at a distance. And what do they say? In fact, it was probably Judas who said this right here, even though we don't have the name. I know I'm throwing him under the bus and all, but every, you have every reason to do it. He's Judas. So, I, I mean, he's a rabbi. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Are you crazy? Do you want to die? You're telling us that Lazarus isn't long for this world. in fact, he does then tell them that he is dead. And they go, what in the world? Because not only were they thinking about Jesus' safety, who else's safety were they thinking about? Uh, Yeah, they their own. They're like, well, great, here we go. Now we're going to find another Messiah to follow. (laughs) If we make it, I don't even know if we're going to make it. And it's interesting what Jesus tells them. In typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't just lay it out for them in simple terms. He gives them this really vague illustration. Probably to make them think, I would guess. Give them something to think about while they're heading to certain death. But he, take their mind off of it. But he, he tells them this. He says, but if anyone walks, or he says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And they're probably going, oh, mm, wow, it's kind of heavy, Jesus. I'm going to need some time to think about that one. But what I believe he was saying here. Was he's telling you, you guys are worried about dying, about risking, but if God is in this, which Jesus believed that he was, and he knew that he was, he knew they were going to be fine. We go from this to this because we let fear determine our decisions. We don't trust that when it comes time to be there for our friends, to take the risks for them, to sacrifice ourselves for them, to lay ourselves open vulnerably with them, we don't trust that God's got us. We don't trust that if it's his will, he's going to work it out. We let fear make our decisions. And that's what the disciples were doing here. But Jesus said, no, guys, let's go. Yeah, you know what? Hey, they could kill me again. And they eventually do. But right now, in this moment, where we're going, we're going to be okay. Because we're doing what God wants us to do. We're risking ourselves for a friend, Lazarus, and Mary and Martha, who are grieving uh, inconsolably at this point, I would guess. Because not only were those two ladies thinking, our brother is dead, whom we're super close to, but Jesus, our friend, has let us down. Because he should have been here two days ago. And he could have done something about it, but he didn't. In fact, we see another account later that we're not going to look at tonight where they actually called Jesus out on that. And they say, you could have been here. You could have stopped this. You could have fixed it all. You could have made it not happen. And Jesus says, we're going to go. It's going to be dangerous, life-threatening. But we love Lazarus. We love Mary. We love Martha. We're going to take the hit. And then the thing that I love that I I think really as we wrap up here tonight, the thing that I love that I believe really drives this point home is in verse 16. Because not only do we have Jesus saying it's time to make a sacrifice for our friend, to take the risk, to put ourselves out there, to do the difficult thing, we see a gentleman in verse 16 that doesn't exactly have the greatest reputation in the Gospels. Now, it's interesting here that when you look at verse 16, and let's look at it real quick, it says, So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples. Now, we know Thomas by another moniker in other places in Scripture, don't we? We do. His name is what in other places? Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas would ask the tough questions. He would be like, no, I don't just accept this out of hand, if you'll excuse the pun. He, he did. He was skeptical. He was like, whoa, wait, hold on. Let's not do this. This I don't I don't understand it at all, so I can't make a decision on it yet. We all know people like that, right? But what is Thomas doing here? So Thomas, called the twin, not called doubting Thomas, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I've seen different scholars and some translators that will say, Oh, this is just Thomas being Thomas, and you know, he's resigning himself to woe was me. I guess we're all gonna die. I don't believe that's what's happening here because we don't see that name, that moniker, Doubting Thomas. We see very deliberately, because all scripture is deliberate and intentional, him referred to as Thomas the Twin. I believe that this guy who throughout, in scripture is historically known as being a doubter and reluctant and struggling with faith and those kinds of things, I believe that in this moment, he says, you know what? Yeah, that's the right thing to do. Time to saddle up, boys. Let's go. If Jesus is going because he believes that it's worth the risk, and that it needs to happen because these are our friends, then I'm going too. Let's go. If we're going to die, we die. God's got this. Because I believe that's what God also calls us to. He doesn't want us to interfere in his will. He doesn't want us to try to be him in the lives of our friends. He doesn't want us to overstep our bounds and get in the way of what he's trying to do. But there are going to be times when he is going to call us to step up and do the right thing. I will conclude with the story, I promise. But... One of my friends, then one of the knuckleheads, and I hope someday he listens to this. I'm not going to name him, though, because I hope he does listen to it. But one of my friends, one of my knuckleheads, I'll never forget. He was my closest friend in high school, my Hassed friend. But he decided he was going to make some different choices. He was going to go a different way. He, I mean, it was like a stupid teenage high school movie. Like he lost a bunch of weight. He, like, all of a sudden started to be popular with people. He got into some sports. He went from being that kid that everybody made fun of and picked on to all of a sudden being really popular in one summer. I mean, it was literally a John Hughes movie. And like, all right, I don't care what you look like or who you are or whatever. I never did. He was, my, he, he was more than my friend. But he decided to take some of those opportunities and start partying with other people. I wasn't a partier. He made that choice. And he stopped talking to me. We stopped hanging out much. We stopped doing a lot of things because he, he wouldn't hang out with me because he would feel guilty every time he tried to. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And so I told him. I said, look, man, I know you got to do what you got to do. I know that you're going to make the choice you're going to make. I love you anyway. I'm always going to be there for you. No matter what you do, it's not going to change how I feel about you and whether or not I'm in your life and all that. And I, but I did give him the space that he needed to do what he needed to do. And I gave God the space to work in the way that only God could. And he came up to me the, or he came up to me the night that we graduated from high school and he was just gone, like blitzed. Like he, uh, he pre-gamed before we went to the high school graduation thing at the high school. So he was loaded before he even got there. And I was like, man, uh, you okay? And he's like, he's like, yeah, I, I." at this point he was kind of one who would get a little bit emotional when he was drinking. Again, I know he's going to hear this someday, but um, he was like, yeah, you know, I just really miss you, and, and uh, I, don't, I wish we hung out like we used to, and things are just different now, and I don't, I don't really think everybody that I'm running with really really likes me all that much. And I'm like, well, I t- what I said stands, man. I am there for you. I love you. I'll be there for you. I will not participate in what you're doing, nor will I support and encourage you in any way, but I'll be there for you, always. And I said, tell you what, how about, you know, we get through tonight, you go home sober up and if you still feel this way tomorrow you give me a call and we'll talk it through and i didn't expect to hear from him again i figured I'll just go back to whatever that was as usual the next day he called me after he'd had a chance to wake up and get something to eat and sober up i said do you even remember last night and he said oh, kind of and i'm like okay well do you remember what happened and what you said and the tears and everything I was like, yeah, I remember that. I'm like, okay. I said, do you, do you still feel that way? He said, yeah, I really do. That's why I called. I said, okay. Exactly what I told you was the case. I said, again, I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to encourage you in doing that nonsense. I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to be complicit in, in any way. But I'll always be there for you. And if you want to spend time with me and you want to hang out and you want our friendship to be what it can be, let's do it. And he did. He, he did. He cut all of that off. He stopped... It wasn't necessarily overnight, but it took a little bit, but not very long. And we began developing that friendship again. It scared me to death. I thought I was going to face losing my friend again. Watching them walk away and reject me. And I'm so glad that I trusted that God was doing something. I took the risk and let myself be vulnerable because to this day I still consider him one of my best friends and we still talk. It's important to risk ourselves with our friends, even though it could cost us circumstantially, personally, emotionally, it's worth it. Jesus shows us on the last day before everything goes crazy in his life that the most important thing to him was spending time with the people that he loved and loved him. Do you have that in your life today? Do you have people that you know you are committed to that are your friends? That you owe things to? That owe things to you? Because of that friendship? If you do, I cannot stress enough, tonight as we close and, and conclude and we're singing and all, take a moment and give them to God. Thank God for them like you've never thanked him for anything. If you don't, though, maybe that's what God wants for you. Maybe church, or maybe some other place that you haven't had your, you haven't let yourself be open to. Maybe there's someone there that God is leading you to in friendship, and maybe just maybe there are people in your lives who are also looking for a friend, but like you are are too scared and afraid to put themselves out there and be vulnerable and initiate that. Maybe God wants you to. Summon the courage through his spirit to reach out to someone and get to know them and become their friend. It can make all the difference in your life and theirs. Just like it did with Jesus, the Son of God. Father God, thank you for friendships. Thank you for Hasid. It's really no surprise that in our culture there's not a word for it. But Lord, I pray that as your people we would model it. That we would recognize the importance of it. That we would risk ourselves for the people that we love, that we're committed to. And yet, love those people enough to let you work in their life. God, I pray that if there are folks here who don't have that in their life that you would give that to them that they would earnestly seek it that they would be willing to take the risk to, to develop those relationships and god even more importantly if there's anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with you jesus The one friend that will never leave them or abandon them or turn their back on them. God, I pray that that individual would begin that relationship tonight. That they would be led by you to talk with me or someone else who loves them. To show them through your word how they can have a relationship with you. Jesus, thank you for taking the risk for us literally dying for us help us to show you the love that we owe you to and it's in your name we pray tonight amen